0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I am Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S. China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast are David Zweig and Peggy Blumenthal. Dr. Zweig is at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, where he is Chair Professor, Division of Social Science, and Director, Center on China's Transnational Relations. Ms. Blumenthal is Senior Counsel to the President at the Institute of International Education, IIE. Thank you both for joining me today. It is June 4th, the 29th anniversary of the crackdown in Beijing. It seems particularly appropriate to talk today about Chinese students and their prospects in both the United States and China. Peggy, please set the stage for us. What are some of the most recent trends among Chinese students coming to the US? Some predicted that the Trump administration's anti-immigrant rhetoric and Muslim travel ban would result in a decline in applications from overseas. What do the statistics show vis-a-vis Chinese students?
1: Let me first start by saying that there are over 350,000 Chinese students enrolled in US higher education. And that number has steadily grown, uh, certainly since normalization, and was Lightly impacted after June 4th, but actually the numbers still continue to grow. It's a little soon to see whether or not um, the Trump administration policies are going to deeply affect applications and enrollment because most people start planning for their time abroad several years in advance. And uh, indeed the whole process is, is, is one that is not easily um, turned by a single policy statement. Uh, The travel ban on six Muslim countries uh, probably had minimal effect on applications from China because they aren't a banned country. Um, More relevant might be the recent rumored changes in the visa policy, but even that is changing to something that was always the case. Up until very recently, Chinese students only got one-year visas. It's only in the past two, three years that they got five-year visas. And the numbers were growing when they had one-year visas, three-year visas, five-year visas. So I'm um, fairly confident that we're not going to see a major turnaround uh, due to administration policies. That being said, the real growth has been at the undergraduate level, not the graduate level. and at the high school level, it's growing fast. So there's many, many reasons why people are coming to the United States from China, and uh, I think those reasons are going to continue to be strong uh, in the future as well.
0: All right. David, in some ways, you're looking at the mirror image. Right. Peggy and her colleagues gather data on inbound Chinese students. While
2: I they... use her data all the time.
0: That's good. <laughs> While you're looking at what happens after they complete their studies, what have you found? Do they return to China? How are they received?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is to differentiate among the people who are returning. Uh, The largest group that's returning are the master students, which I think people didn't pay attention to. Everybody tends to pay attention to the big scientists, are they able to bring back the you know the guys who are teaching at the major institutions Uh, that's that's what the focus is, because it becomes political, because it's, it's the technology transfer, but the vast majority of students, I mean, even before Peggy was saying about the growth of the undergraduates, at one point, almost 85%, 80%, 85% of all the, major, of all the mainland students going out, uh, coming to the United States, were actually coming out as master students. And they were coming out for one to two years, and that's it, right? So they were just painting a little bit of gold and going home. So what that means is, if you're a businessman in China or you're an office manager in China, and you want to go hire somebody uh, to be a you know work in your office, the odd and you want to get someone with a master's students, the odds are about twenty five percent that they're going to have foreign education. I mean that's the way it is now in China, which is actually amazing. So when people walk into an office in Beijing, uh, the person not maybe not maybe the receptionist, but the next level person they're going to meet. They could have a master's degree from somewhere in North America. So that's I think that's an important um, uh, point that people haven't paid attention to. Then, of course, you get into the question of how many of the super-talented are going back. And and my argument, though the data are from four or five years ago, my argument is still that the super-talented aren't going back full-time. Are not. Are not. The, the, the major program that the Chinese government, or actually the Communist Party runs, called the Thousand Talents Program, it has both a short-term and a long-term program. You can go back for summer, sort of, sort of like you can go back short-term for three months, or you go back permanently. And the idea when they set it up in 2008, 2009 was to get these people to come back permanently the then uh, head of the organization department of the Communist Party, thought that he could do it. A man named li and Chow, he thought that he could do it. But the numbers didn't pan out. And so they quickly introduced a summer program, basically, a shorter-term program, and that the very ta- many of the many of the very talented or some of the very talented are willing to participate so there's still the technology transfer going on these people are still spending a summer there could be joint training of phd's there could be joint laboratories but the there's still an insecurity and an uncertainty among and i would say among the very talented and and there's politics within the the institutions that they go back to which i We'll talk about this afternoon, so people want to follow up and see the the slide presentation, the discussion we're going to have, um, I I can show that, you know, the the institutional context, who's running the show, uh, even if you're a good scholar, do you control all your money? Can you hire people on your own without bureaucratic interference? I think that's still a problem. So that's stopping, I think, people who are well-esconced in North America or Australia or Europe holding a really good position to give up that job permanently.
0: And do most of the super-talented, whatever term you used, the best of the best, Yeah, the best. get foreign citizenship someplace?
2: Well, I think a lot of them would be if they... I think a lot of them would have foreign citizenship. Uh, which is one of the reasons why the people who want to encourage returnees have been pushing for a, either a dual citizenship policy, which the Chinese government uh, has refused to accept, or some kind of really permanent long-term green card status. And now they've established a new Bureau of, uh, of Immigration, which will help handle a lot of this. So there's a real recognition that the very talented have foreign citizenship and you have to be able to create some kind of structure where they feel comfortable coming back. Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know if either or both of you have seen an article in today's Washington Post, the headline of which is, China increasingly challenges American dominance of science. And it starts with a description of a Spanish geneticist who was at Yale, and got fed up with the American immigration system. He was stopped at a New York City area airport, it didn't say which one, for two hours and questioned, and was tantalized by an invitation from China that came with all sorts of wonderful perks. Big signing bonus, guaranteed research funding, ample tech staff, the chance to build a genetics research center from scratch. Obviously, a Spani- Spaniard is not a Chinese person. But do you think he's an anomaly, or is he typical, or should we be worried that China is now attracting foreign talent, that we are maybe losing because
1: they're going to China? Uh, I, I Just to start, um, I would say we should be worried about foreign talent not coming to the United States for a number of reasons, but the first competitors and the strongest competitors will be Canada, will be uh, Europe. Um, China has attracted several high, high-ranking American uh, and Chinese-American scholars who have gone, some of them have. Stayed. Some of them have returned to the U.S. Finding that they were not as um, the perks were not fully outweighed by some of the downside. Um, but I would yield to David Zweig, who will <laughs> well, know this better.
2: I, I gave a talk in um, 2000, 2012 to this man Li Chao, who was the head of the Communist Party's or You know program for bringing talent back, and there were six of us, four, four, four Chinese, all domestic, and two foreigners. And the guy sitting beside me was a Nobel Prize winner in, in, in the genome, you know, and Chinese? he's No, a Westerner, Western, yeah. with a ponytail, right. and, and, and he, he runs a company in Shenzhen. So, so that's been going on, and so this is not a new thing that Chinese, I mean, the Thousand Talents Plan has a foreign component. Um, and I've seen um, a, um, a meeting between Li Chao and Wang Yang, right, who's now the member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, uh, in, in uh, either Guangzhou or in Shenzhen, where they were surrounded by foreign uh, thousand-talent people. Uh, people who would, you know, maybe a Pole, someone from Poland who had done very well, a uh, really good scientist, and someone had offered him a post in China, similar to the kind of position that you've been describing. Uh, but I don't think it's, at this point, that's not where the uh, where the worry would come from. I mean, the real competi- competition is the people that I've described, I think, either people who go back full-time and bring back a technology that they've been working on in the United States, maybe shared a member of a team uh, or, or in some cases, I've met a guy in the Chinese Academy of Sciences who may have been, I'm trying to remember exactly where he was, he was maybe UPenn PhD, Carnegie Mellon postdoc, something like that, part of a team and he went back to the Chinese Academy of Sciences and he had already taken the project that he had worked on with his PhD and made it more advanced. And so they offered him a position to come back. So here was a, a guy who everybody people saw as sort of cutting edge, moving forward, and he was going back uh, with a grant and with a team. Um, so that, that's what's happening.
1: And also I think we just have to remember that there's this circulation of talent and people may go for two years to China and then they may go to Dubai and then they may go to France. And people, um, I I think today, the really, really top talent is not necessarily going to pick a lab and stay there for life. Yeah.
2: That's possible. I mean, also, you know, you get the stories of air pollution in Beijing. Uh, so there's there's the people leaving. Um, uh, but but I think I think people I think there's a good flow of people. My sense is it's a, the Shenzhen and and that part Guangzhou the Pearl River Delta mm-hmm. I think is starting to attract uh, good talent.
0: Now the emphasis in this conversation so far has been on people in the sciences what about people in the humanities and social sciences? Are they going back at similar
2: rates? Well, I, I think uh, hard to say. I don't have a lot of data about PhDs. You know, people going back as professors. I mean, there's serious recruitment going on at, at uh, schools like um, uh, People's University, Redmond University, Beidat, Xinhua, still trying to, but I, I think that for the social scientists, unless you're doing something like Chinese foreign policy or international relations, I think the environment is just not as comfortable and not as warming uh, as it has been. We're starting to hear stories, uh, though not easy to confirm, that there's, people are running into difficulties because of the uh, insistence on more Marxism-Leninism that sees tightening up. Um, that that is starting to have some degree of negative impact. And, I, you know, as, as someone who's worked with China for a long time and who likes China, you know, I don't mind saying, you know, that that kind of policy is going to, and it's likely to drive people not to want to go back, particularly people in the social sciences, people who want to uh, do research about society. You can't say negative stuff. What are you going to do?
1: And China may not mind losing those people. The other thing, they may be more problem on campus than not on campus. Right. I think the other uh, point that David made right at the beginning of our podcast is it's the people coming back with MBAs who are going to, we, we, uh, you know, we weren't just talking about STEM people. We are talking about people who came back with an MBA. My impression was those people are still doing very well. And I was reassured to hear your comments um the China Center on Globalization put out a report recently where they sort of said, oh, if you come back with an MBA, your salary is going to not be competitive with other Chinese who've stayed in China. And... um, was very surprising wow. to me because true. I don't think it's true I don't it think it's true I think
2: there's still probably I mean I have data on ti- over time and I actually have this this center on China's globalization data okay. <laughs> and, I, and I've been running it Great. you know my research assistant has been doing statistical analysis of it and and there's still a premium yeah there's still yeah, a premium at least 20 percent but but not not the way it was right. you know 206 I have data from 206 10 years ago you could get 1.3 times 1.5 times yeah. what a domestic person was getting whereas now we're talking about 20% premium 330% mm-hmm. premium not such a big not such a big difference.
1: Well, one of their reports, which I'll share with you later, actually used the word chicken feed to compare the salaries they were getting compared to the costs they had incurred well, by studying that, abroad.
2: That's, that's a different question. <laughs> so you know, as the Chinese would say, you know, is it worth the right, investment? Right, right. And so we have questions. And I think that's a big question that I've been pursuing. Because if you are a parent, if you're a 55-year-old Chinese, you're close to retirement, you know you're not a business person but you're close to retirement do you want to invest a lot of your retirement money in your kid you know two years in england you're talking 300,000 what you're talking three hundred, four hundred thousand 400,000 so you may be talking 50 60 70,000 us dollars and that kid's going to take a long time to earn back that money so so well,
1: assuming they come back
2: well yeah That's assuming the they come problem. back but most of the, i think most of the mbas are, yeah. uh, most of the mbas uh, are coming back
0: when so. you started- But let me mentioned-
2: just say, well, there's one more yeah. group that we haven't right. mentioned, which is the entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah.
2: Right? And that's a very important group. And that's also a group that's setting up in China. They're coming here. They're working on projects. They're they're setting up companies. They're going back and forth. Um, uh, they're troubled by what's going on in America mm-hmm. because they're involved in tech transfer. Right. And I tried to do, I went to Silicon Valley two months ago to try and interview Chinese who were living in Silicon Valley about their involvement with China. And nobody would talk to me. None of the senior people would talk to me. Young people, you know, who are running a small company, startup, cool, let's, you know, talk, fun, we had a good time, you know. Um, uh, but but when it came to trying to meet with senior company owners, they didn't want to talk to me. Whereas the Indians were very glad to talk. I had great conversations with Indian entrepreneurs. um, But the Chinese entrepreneurs, I think, are very worried about um, the 301 investigation, which is the investigation of of the, the intellectual property rights. That's made them very nervous. And so I think they're hunkering down, and they're being really cautious.
0: Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But thank you very much, both of you, for speaking with me today.